butterfly, butterfly, pretty butterfly. When I see you flap your wing, I know when it's time for spring. Butterfly, butterfly, pretty butterfly. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Honest Participants Only podcast. We have another great episode for you today. We are going to be discussing illness and loss. And I kind of interchange those two words. Sometimes I say loss and illness. Sometimes I say illness and loss. Just for the record, it will be what it will be today. So I've got some amazing people joining me to have this conversation. Um, Hi, Jamisha. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Well. No problem. Welcome to the pod. And we've also got Dawn. Hi, Dawn. How are you doing? Hi, everyone. I'm good. <laughs> it feels a little bit like you just gave a game show wave. <laughs> 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 and then hi to Gail. Hey. <laughs> you feeling shy? Right, I'm just going to move us around a little bit because I don't like being up the um, top. I want you to look down on me, if anything. I don't want to be looking down on you. So um, I got in touch with you all because I wanted to obviously speak about illness and loss. Um, But let's tell the people who you actually are. So, Jamisha, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure. Um, Hello, everyone. (laughs) My name is Jamisha Prescott. I'm an artist filmmaker um, based in South London, and I run a sort of online space called You Look Okay To Me. So I sort of use any creative form that feels right to sort of explore chronic illness, disability, but also how it intersects with social themes. So how your ethnicity, your uh, gender identity, your culture, how that impacts the way that you experience being ill is usually uh, what I like to explore. So that's me. <laughs> yeah. And before we started recording, before um, Dawn and Gail joined, I did tell Jamisha that I was a little bit obsessed with her social media <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I, I identify with it all. And I'm like, Shay, don't be greedy. Anyway. <laughs> and um, Gail, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I'm a singer. I run music companies, so gospel choirs, as well as community singing workshops. I travel and I talk and I eat. And that's me in a nutshell. I know there's more, but those are the things I can think of right now. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And Gail and I are born on the same day, not the same year, but June the 15th, halfway through the year, halfway through the month, which is obviously the best. Um, and then finally, and I've done it in such a weird order, like, um, hello to you, Dawn. Do you want to tell us a little bit about you? <laughs> so, yes, I am Dawn Morton Young, or some people on here would call me Connie, but it depends if you're a friend of mine or not. Um, and I am a, a diversity, equity and inclusion strategist, trainer, and speaker. I'm also an executive coach to underrepresented leaders and founders, um, helping to address the disparity at board and C-suite level, just make the the world a little bit more tolerant. And um, I'm also a singer, and I sing with Gail, um, and I support um, artists on the road, so backing vocals, session singing, and so I'm also travelling quite a lot with that as well. Yeah. Uh, this has nothing to do with this podcast, but go on, tell us a secret 
about one of the stars. Go on, go on. Oh, God. No? Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm joking. Oh, okay. Yes. That's a good one. Um, Thank you. Whilst handles are around her in the studio. That one. Nice. <laughs> one I can probably tell you. <laughs> I, I can't fault it. It sounds good. Yeah. I might do it myself. Yeah. <laughs> Surrounded by candles in my bedroom. How about that? Yes. Um, so today, as I said, we're going to be speaking about illness and loss. And, you know, since we began this podcast, I was smiling. I grin like a Cheshire cat. And we will come to that because I'm very, very good at hiding my pain. So much so that I feel like I might go the other way, right? Um, but I've been smiling. But the minute I brought up this scene just there, my smile kind of dissipated because it actually means so much to, it's about quality of life. It's about, it's about so much. And that's what we're going to get into today. So let's go backwards in terms of how you introduced yourself. Um, just give us a brief overview, Connie. Sorry. And you said it with friends and I've been doing all such right. a let's great do job. That. Let's do Connie. Okay, let's do that. So, Connie, tell us um, a little bit about why illness and loss matters to you and a bit about your story. Oh, gosh. So there's so many things. Um, So the most prevalent, I guess, for me is um, my youngest daughter. So I have four daughters who I call my room fruits. Um, Mm -hmm. And my youngest daughter has a rare genetic disorder. So she was born at home. Um, She was my last daughter. And when she was probably about four months or so, um, my ex-husband and I, we noticed that she wasn't sitting up. She didn't seem to be, you know, progressing in a way that a child should. Um, And so we took her to the GP, as you do. um, And they said, oh, okay, you know, she might be just a bit delayed. We'll refer her to a paediatrician. And they'd given me an appointment. I think it was like six or eight months ahead And in the meantime, she one night had a tremor in episode. So her whole body started to, and imagine this is a little baby and her body's going like this, her tongue is going, and we couldn't stop her shaking. So we've rushed her obviously into A&E. They don't know what's going on. They think she's having a seizure. Nothing's going on in the brain that would say it was a seizure. Then got referred to Great Ormond Street Hospital, and that's when everything started. The lumbar punctures, the you know, all of that kind of to try and find out what was wrong. Asking my ex-husband and I, and I a thousand times whether we were related, um, and you know, as to why this this problem could be happening. And as the time's gone on, she was diagnosed probably about when she was about five, so she didn't walk till she was about six because they couldn't find anything that was wrong. Personally, I think that what, you know, what she has, I'm not saying she doesn't have it, but I do have other children with my ex-husband. And my remembrance is the vaccine triggered it, but that's my personal. And I know there'll be people out there that wouldn't necessarily um, correlate with what I'm saying, but that's my feeling. Um, And so she, so basically they diagnosed her with something called ACO2 related cerebellar and retinal degeneration, which based, they said that my ex-husband and I both gave her a 40 ACO2 gene. And so she had that copy 40. And what it manifests in for her is she's still quite tremory, a bit like Parkinson's-ish. She has poor mobility. So as I said, she didn't walk for it and coordination balance. She falls over quite a lot. She doesn't. um, But the most, 
I guess, critical thing to her is she's cognitively delayed as well, speech delayed, but she understands everything. It's a really strange thing. She's really cheeky. She knows how to be rude. Um, <laughs> uh, but then the most damning thing is her eyesight. So she is a registered partially sighted. Um, and that's the retinal degeneration. And she looks at everything like this. One of the eyes is worse than the other. So if you can imagine her learning, even though she can walk now, being able to see, to walk her peripheral, all that kind of thing is out. So I am currently fundraising at the moment to try and get some stem cell therapy, which is not done in this country. You know, with the NHS, what I found is they see her once a year. She's got a condition that was only discovered in 2012 and she was born in 2011. The majority of the people that had it in infancy have died now. Um, and so she doesn't seem to be following that pattern. Um, I very much am a holistic, natural looking at those sorts of things and I really did take action to detox her from vaccines and do all that kind of thing and I think that's what's helped her to kind of come along a bit better I've I can't tell you how much thousands of pounds I've spent on therapy and things for her um and then so that's a layer and that's obviously an everyday thing and dealing with the system um uh, in relation to that and also um the kind of mum feelings that comes with that because nobody wants their child to be struggling and all the rest of it so in terms of my own mental health it's been a journey and then for me funnily enough I think that the trauma of that experience actually threw me into early menopause so I am now I'm going to be 44 this year and I have been menopausal for I would say the last seven years so I went into menopause probably around 35 and I didn't know it was that. I removed contraception and then I didn't get periods. Went to the doctor. They said, oh, you know, it's because you've removed the contraception. Give it a year. And so I went through that whole. And then there was a um, I've got a, part, a new partner now. And we, we went to go and see if I could um, get my eggs out basically because we weren't ready to have a child but maybe in the future and um when I went there they basically said to me your ovaries are dead there's nothing there's nothing there and that was how I knew that I was in menopause so I am now hot flushing um I don't really get the mood swings but you know what I'm definitely a person of faith and I'm definitely a person that believes in the impossible and I also believe that you can create your own life. And so for me, although I've got that diagnosis, I am and I'm, I'm busy with so many other things. that I haven't really started to concentrate on it. But one of the things that I'm really trying to do is to, to just get into my mindset and into my body and try to see if I can heal myself from that. So watch this space and we'll yeah. see what happens. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Mm. And uh, we were all listening intently mm. and you know, there are parts that we can identify with and parts that we obviously can't, which is why you're here to share. Um, we will come back to each of your methods for coping a little bit later. So yeah, absolutely. It would be interesting to compare all of ours um, and other people's, I guess. Jamisha, can you tell us a little bit about your health story? Uh, yes. Um, I, I guess I'll say I was officially diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called lupus in 2014. So it was like, I think I was diagnosed two days after my first day at uni. Um, but I had been experiencing symptoms before that. So um, I think 
probably when I was around high school, like late high school, you know, I started feeling quite tired all the time, having joint pain, but I kind of attributed being tired to being a teenager. That's what everyone told me. It's just like, oh, you know, it's, it's puberty. It's, te- it's just your teen years. Um, you're going through GCSEs. You're just tired because of that. So I kind of just attributed it to that while at the same time, though, people calling me lazy because I was sleeping all the time. So I was like, can't win. Um, but then as it, as time went by, it sort of started to get a bit more obvious that something wasn't quite right. And so I reflected on myself and I was like, you know what, like there's some, there some choices that maybe I'm making in my life that maybe I need to work on to improve myself so I started changing my eating habits and how much I drank water and how much I exercised just to try and see if maybe there's something I could do to get rid of what was happening and then unfortunately like at the point where I'm like tippy top I actually you know those choices did make kind of a difference but then that's when I experienced my first actual flare-up was when I was after I was exercising I just got extremely uh, unwell um yeah my my bones were hurting my joints were hurting and that's when I was like okay I'm literally like have changed so much um and it's still there's still something that's not quite right I I need to check this out and so that's when I went on a long journey of trying to convince uh doctors that something was was wrong um on multiple occasions I was going back and they were like oh you're just anemic and then I'd get rid of the anemia. Okay, it's a vitamin D deficiency, you know, because you have dark skin, black people, we need to take vitamin D. We're in this cloudy country. That's true. I was vitamin D deficient. But then after I dealt with that, I'm still tired. So what's wrong? Um, you're just you're just growing. And I'm like, I am 19 or 18. Like, I don't know if I'm still growing. I'm not sure. Like, it just kept being something else. And then they're like, okay, you just need to take Barocca, like just some vitamins. I'm like, okay. Wow. I'm going to need to, so at that point, I kind of had to um, do my own investigation. And I know they always say like, oh, Google is not your doctor, but I'm going to be honest, when you're not getting the support from those that you trust mostly with your health, you have to look elsewhere. So I kind of always say to do like an intelligent Google. Don't assume you've got the first thing you've Googled, but have a little (laughs) menu of options that might be like what you might be experiencing. And so arthritis came up lupus came up a few things um uh and then eventually I was like okay so if it's these things what tests need to be so I kind of just did the whole investigation and came back to my doctor and was like look did you test for this 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 this, and this and that's when they were like okay we'll refer you got referred had a nice doctor at first that predicted lupus as soon as she met me she looked at me and was like yeah I have a feeling you've got lupus because I even had like the rash which comes with lupus on my face but then the doctor I saw after her um undiagnosed me with lupus and said it's just depression and you are mentally ill you need to take um this uh it wasn't even like an I can't remember what it was called but this specific like anti-depression medication which I'm not against um I actually do deal with mental health issues but that wasn't the cause of my pain um and then eventually I was able to sort of make a complaint I got seen by and I'm currently seen by like a lupus expert uh, at Guy's Hospital and then as soon as like we did all the tests again he was just like yeah it's very obvious it's lupus I don't know why we were doing all of this like this is just really unnecessary so that's sort of like the journey of figuring it out um it was quite long and annoying um it could have been a lot shorter but we got there eventually and I mean it's just good to know so I can work around like and make these kind of adaptations based on what I deal with but that's in a nutshell my story yeah it's a huge nutshell um and as much <laughs> as you know you know you for you you've just touched the surface but there's so much that comes from that and 
we will get onto it. I haven't even shared um, a part of my story yet, which I'm not going to do in, in depth, but there's a prevailing message coming through all of us. And it's the kind of trying to convince somebody that something's not quite right. Mm. Um, it's just, is it's such a trigger for me. I speak to thousands of patients across the world on a regular basis. And that, that theme, it prevails and it's sad. Thank mm. you so much for sharing. Gail, tell us a bit about your health. So um, when I was about 14, 15, I was diagnosed with IBS. I've always managed it well. So for many, many years, I didn't eat dairy. And then how IBS works is that sometimes the symptoms can change. So it might be dairy that affects you, and then suddenly it's wheat. But it just happens, and you just get stitched. The tiredness is something that I've, although people don't know that, tiredness and exhaustion is something that I have lived my whole life. And especially when I push myself too much, I will be exhausted. No, 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 as a kid, I used to be exhausted to the point that I couldn't walk. Nobody would know this. My family would know this. And I would just be completely exhausted. So fast forward many years, living with IBS. Um, like Jamisha, I've taken the steps. I'm like, yeah, actually, let me start going to the gym, working out, taking the body that I'm blessed with, taking it seriously. So I started going to the gym. I would go four, five times a week. It was my 5 a.m. I'd go 5 a.m., working out, working hard. And I observed that. I was losing weight, well, I wasn't. There's weeks in the woods, sometimes I wouldn't. And my tummy would never go down. It's always bloated, always sticking at it. And the whole point of going to the gym is like, yeah, I'm going on holiday, I want to look fly. And I'm like, yo, I still can't wear the bikini. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, it's starting to really bother me. So let me go to the doctor um, and say, listen, I... So I should also know, with IBS, the symptoms are tiredness, um, constipation or diarrhea. Um, I will get a stitch and sometimes stress will affect it and stuff like that. So I went to the doctor and I said, listen, I think my, my IBS or this is happening. So the conversation that we had, it's probably you need to look at changing your diet. So previous, and again, I go in cycles. Sometimes I'm dairy-free. So I thought, okay, this time, he said, I think maybe it's wheat. So, okay, still going to the gym, no wheat. Now, having a non-wheat diet about four years ago, believe you me, that is really hard because so many things have wheat in. Things you wouldn't imagine have got wheat in it. So... I, I was eating and I thought, oh, when you start to think about that, they're not, oh, maybe it's because of that. That had a hidden, unknown wheat thing in there. So that's why I'm bloated. That's why my tummy's never going down. So I'm doing this for months and months, no change. So I went back to my doctor and he said, oh, we'll go and have some scans. Um, the scans came back that I had fibroids. And it's interesting because fibroids and IBS, some of the symptoms do overlap. <clears throat> um, but then there's an issue after that situation is, what do you do next? Um, if I don't have a partner, you want to have kids and stuff like that. And you go to an appointment and they're saying to you, okay, right, so you should have a hysterectomy. I, 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 
people don't understand the weight of, they can say lots and lots of things after that, or even before that. But when you mention hysterectomy, your mind just, it's mental. So I've had those conversations about, they referred me to fertility clinics. Um, and where, where I'm at the moment is I'm waiting for my myectomy to have my fibroids removed. There's a number of options that you can have, um, but that's where I'm at. There's a whole other bit of story of just manoeuvring the choices to deal with them. Now, people will say to me about diet and stuff, but honestly, because I have IBS and I, have, I am bloated anyway, it doesn't matter what I eat now. I With the fibroids, I'm bloated. With the IBS, I'm bloated. I'm tired anyway. So some of these things going to the... Sometimes it's just demotivating because you feel this makes no difference. And speaking to other um, women, they're like, yeah, they're just hysterectomy. You, people don't understand the weight of that word on women or a family or it's a lot so yeah yeah thank you so much for sharing um and there is um i'm sure that a lot of people watching will have had that experience as well um i'm going to share a little bit about my story but i'm going to do it slightly differently so i'm going to put up on the screen some of my diagnoses and what you'll find they can't all fit in one. It's cut it off, not even halfway through, <clears throat> through all of my diagnoses. This one is, again, there's about uh, three or four more lines that need to go in this. And that is just the things that I'm currently diagnosed with. In the past, I also had a pituitary tumour that is probably still there, but nobody's taking care of. Because when you start to have these competing illnesses none of the specialists you're with kind of deal with you holistically anyway typically um you also don't want to be seen as neurotic so you hold back you realize that if you speak too much if you have spoken to google dr google and you find something that makes sense actually and if you're doing intelligent searches you know too much or okay she's one of those and so you learn to kind of manipulate yourself to feed into what it is they want of you and for you and it's so many so many parts of your stories will you know kind of touch the lives of so many of us in the world because it's just this is why we're having this conversation is basically what I'm saying so with you the same as you girl I have deeply into in infiltrating let me just put this up because I'm not going to say all the things <laughs> <laughs> I have um and because of my endometriosis fibroid uterus inside outside all over my body moving around doing all of the things the cysts the um womb adherence and all of those things in 2020 and I've had mate I've had loads of surgeries in my life uh I've also been misdiagnosed for most of my life I've also was told I was also told at 23 just take you can't have children just take your womb out and like you say, they don't understand that for me, who identifies as a woman, I that felt to me like it would take away my femininity. Mm. I was 23. About 10 years later, I saw a different specialist who was like, um, we don't know you can't have children. Who told you that? 
but I'd lived for 10 years with I can't have children and so nobody would really do anything apart from suggest I take my room out or if you take it out it, you know it's a happy cure well actually no it's not it's not really a happy cure um and again this is just my gynae stuff that I have all these other things that kind of um go on with it when I was diagnosed with cancer in 2010 and then lived with uh, you know that for how many years I was very I was broken because what they should have done when you have a cancer diagnosis is say okay let's preserve your eggs nobody did and so when I decided that I'm like okay I want to look into my fertility I had lost so much I tell you all of that and I'm about to tell you about my surgery in just one second before we move on but I tell you all of that because actually um there was a responsibility that is not being met when we are having these conversations. And I'm not talking about the direct thing that's happening to us. So whether it's the lupus or, you know, whatever it is, I'm talking about the responsibility to think about how what they're doing in that moment may impact the rest of your life. And that's a really hard thing to convince people about. So um, June 2020, three days after my birthday, um, June 18th, I was, and remember, we were in a pandemic now. So I couldn't celebrate my birthday with, with anyone. I had to self-isolate for a bunch before I went in for major surgery. The surgery was a myomect. It was three surgeries in one. So it was a myomectomy. It was something else and something else. Again, this is my fuzzy brain as a result of having to deal with all of these things over the years. I no longer, I became so kind of, um, I'm very anal about things. And that is to do with control because you realize you lose so much control of the rest of your life. So you become that way. But I've now started to let some of that go because I can't possibly remember everything. And actually it's just too much. I want to focus the energy I have on a better quality of life. Went in for this major surgery. I remember I was really nervous. Pandemic was upon us. Nobody knew what was happening. Thought I was going to die for sure. Um, 7 a.m. I'm in the, you know, the pre-op place. And the surgeon, who had just been terrible along the way, came to me and said, so we're going to cut you from your navel down to your groin, all through the muscle and everything. That's what we need to do. Which, you know, if this was a different show, if this was maybe private on YouTube, I would put up pictures, but I won't. And that wasn't a problem. I knew what was going to happen. I knew what might happen, all of these things. I remember I told you I, I was going to die anyway, so it doesn't matter where you cut me at this stage. And I'd been living in such terrible condition for such a long time. I was like, this could be resolved. The bit that bothers me, the reason I'm telling you this story, is because he said to me, and after surgery, you're probably keloid because black people always do. Now, <laughs> I have had major surgery. When I had cancer, they cut me from my ear all the way down up here under my neck. And my first surgeon, after my first surgery, you could see the stitch marks because it was done so poorly because I guess black people keloid. The second surgeon was like, let's do something about that. So two years later, when I grew another mass, they were like, let's take you in. And you can hardly see it now because there was someone who took care. And that's what I'm talking about. It was like, how might this impact the rest of her life for me just to take a little bit of care in this moment? I was in the hospital um, for eight days alone, obviously, COVID. Um, and each day I would have specialists come and see me who were not my specialist. Every single day of those eight days, someone told me something different. 
I had three surgeons in there with me, two gynae, one bowel, because my womb was adhered to my bowel and still is, and they couldn't separate it. But what I didn't know, remember, I'm going to be cured. I'm going to be helped. After coming around to surgery, my surgeon stood at the end of my bed and said, "We, your inside is so fused up, we couldn't remove your womb in order to get to all the fibroids. So all of the things that are in this letter, by the way, this is how the letter described it, right? So that's a whole different podcast as well. What I now have to go and do my research and figure out what half of these things mean. But, you know, all of these things were happening and actually we can't, you're going to need a, a bigger surgery. But if we could have, we would have taken your room. Now that was a long, long story. I didn't expect it to be that long, but so many points of each of your stories hit my story. And I think that's, that's the true, that's true of everyone. And I was going to ask this question a little bit later, but actually I'm going to ask it now. Where is it? In your stories, do you think racial bias and discrimination played a role? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you who, I'm not going to suggest who goes first. You feel free um, to just kick it off. It's a, it's a hard question. I will hands down one million trillion percent the fact that they just go straight for cut out your womb and that assumption that because you're black you've already got lots of kids already stuff like that and it's funny in talking to other black women who are going through the same thing some of them were even presented with options at first, I must say, I wasn't really presented with options, but I hands down think, and it would be really good to speak to some of my other, my colleagues and friends from other ethnicities, but I don't seem them to hear them talking about, oh, they suggested have a history. They've gone straight into deep options. You can do this, you could do that. Da -da 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 -da. Have you that question about your, your eggs, you know, from the first time you're having a discussion about any serious surgery, why aren't they asking you, women? But I, again, I don't, why aren't they asking about your eggs? Do you want to freeze your eggs? I never even knew that was an option. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting that, um, so obviously I, I have multiple diagnoses as well. I mainly talk about lupus, but I have an undiagnosed womb issue as well um that i still don't know what it is um and it's interesting that that is where i see clearly the racial bias in my treatment i'm sure there was racial bias that played its role in other things that i've got but it always is so obvious when it comes to gynecological health the womb the ovaries and then when i have conversations with other black people or black women that that it, the story keeps coming up and obviously some of us may or may not know obviously like that gynecology was founded on our torture anyway like that for us to have gynecology where it is at at this stage was based on the experimentation of enslaved women so the fact that still to this day we don't have options even though this whole field of medicine exists on the back of us is quite wild to me i am um, I had a laparoscopy in 2021 because I do still believe I probably have endometriosis or adenomyosis, but they don't believe me. It's fine. Um, but when I had the surgery, I told them, I said, I'm having very severe pain on my right side. 
Um, they did uh, three scans, ultrasound, CT, MRI. They all presented a complex mass on the right ovary. And then I went into surgery. I was treated like not a human being. The only person that treated me like a human being was a black woman who I'm not even very religious, but she prayed for me. And even though I'm not religious, it was the first time I felt human, that someone treated me like a human being and saw my humanity. Um, when I woke up, my wounds were on the left side and uh, saw the paper and they said they drained a simple cyst from the left ovary, not a complex mass that they had previously said in three different scans. They didn't, uh, they sent me home with no painkillers. They, um, I saw a white lady that was in the same ward, old white lady, she got painkillers. I didn't get painkillers. Um, yeah. And when I had emailed back to say, I'm really confused as to why there's a discrepancy between the scan and information and the, and the surgery, I didn't get a reply. It was only when I had to complain. And then they just went, oh, sorry, the scans were flipped, which I still don't believe. But I, I just bring up that story to say that it's quite interesting that gynecology, I'm, I'm not saying racial discrimination doesn't happen in the other aspects, but it's very interesting that that shared experience happens. The fact that none of you were given the option about your your options afterwards when it comes to your eggs and your fertility. The fact that I have a friend of mine that's my age who was told, yeah, we just need to remove your ovaries and she was like what and then when she went to another doctor they said first of all the scans are fuzzy and I'm not doing that like I don't know why they said that to you the fact that I have another friend who had her they said oh it's going to be fine don't worry about it but then when they opened her up they saw that her bowel were fused to her like these stories the fact that you're bringing up stuff that like, all of you are saying things that I've already heard or experienced yeah. to me is quite disgusting uh, in a field that only exists because of our because off the back of us, I just find it so annoying and frustrating. Sorry to talk for so long, but it just no, no, no. very frustrating. Oh, I think you're a mute. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, it's just listening to uh, your story and that question in particular. Do you want like a dissertation? Because <laughs> um, I, I spoke about my daughter, Alea, and obviously I've spoken about her illness, but right at the beginning, remember I said she was born at home. So she's my fourth. And uh, before that, so I had when I had my first daughter, I was 18 when I got pregnant, had her when I was 19, you know, just went with what the hospital was saying and, you know, laid on my back, epidural, all the painkillers, all the rest of it. And then uh, mm -hmm. when I got with my ex my second child and um, although I was a bit more clued up still you know we go into the hospital that's what you do and then after that when I had Shia which is my third I decided that I was going to go more naturally but I went into the birthing centre and I did that and then when I got pregnant with a layer who was a miracle in itself because I actually um, I don't know how that happened honest to God mm -hmm. I don't know how I got pregnant with her um, and then so uh, I decided I was going to have a home birth so what happened is obviously you can't plan birth. She was about a week overdue or so. And so when I went into um, labor, uh, they sent, obviously you called the hospital and they said, oh, you're having a home birth. So they send somebody and they sent somebody here and she was not a white lady. I will say that first. She wasn't white. She wasn't black, but she wasn't a white lady. <coughs> and, um, Obviously, I'm here and I'm labouring. I'm just I'm hypnobirthing, so I'm really quiet, really into myself, just not you know making any. So she examined me. I think I was about four centimeters at the time, 
And I remember she kept saying to me, go to the toilet, go to the toilet. I'm like, oh, I don't really want to go to the toilet. She said, you've got hours. And then within sort of half an hour of her examining me, I could feel that this baby was coming soon. And I said to her, no, I don't think I should go upstairs. I think I should get into the pool, actually, because I'm feeling like... She said, no, I just examine you or you've got hours yet. You've got five, six hours. I said, um, this is my fourth baby. I kind of know what it feels like. Anyway, she went on and on. Literally, she would not leave me alone. I'm in the middle of contractions and she's like... Because um, she's got a list of things that need to happen. You need to go and we. So I said, all right, I'm going to go upstairs. And she let me go upstairs by myself. Yeah. Okay. So I've gone upstairs by myself. I've sat on the toilet and I just felt a layer just go whoosh. So I've now hit the birthing, gone out the window because I'm panicking now because my baby's about to come out in the toilet. So I've screamed. Imagine this. The person who wants a natural birth has ended up screaming. I've screamed. She's come running up the stairs. I think there was a student nurse. Um, and she's like, I'll oh, get on your all fours. So I'm in the landing outside of the bedroom on all fours. The head is out. Yeah. Because the gravity of me squatting on the toilet has brought her down. So then in my panic, oh no, like what's going to happen? Pushed her out really quickly. She's come out. She's blue. They had to use um, oxygen on her as well to see if she was going to start to breathe and all of that kind of stuff. But just because they wouldn't listen to me, just because they wouldn't hear me saying, I know this is, I was born to do this. <laughs> Let me do it. I've done it before. I know what it feels like. Listen to me. And because they wouldn't listen, something could have happened. I don't know whether that had a ricochet effect on what happened to my daughter later on. I have no clue. And there was no way of me proving that. But, you know, that's one of the instances. Obviously, I've told you my story in terms of the whole menopause thing where they wouldn't listen to me for two years. But I, I honestly feel like that kind of um, viewpoint and what the reason I stress that it wasn't a white lady is because although there are other people of colour, mm. it seems as if black women are seen by everybody to be less than human. To, to, to be fair. From their own oppressors that we yeah. are supposed to be at the bottom. And to be fair, a bit later, I've got, I've got a few quotes from other people um, um, that we're going to comment on a bit later. And this whole thing isn't about race, I promise. But let me put no. this quote on the screen. <laughs> um, and it says, just because my doctor is black mm. doesn't mean she advocates on my behalf. And that's what came to mind when you were talking, because actually... The race of the people dealing with us matters in as much as uh, we know where we stand generally. So not every person in every race is going to treat us the same way. They're not monolith as much as we aren't. But typically there is that kind of upbringing and understanding. But I've also found, and, and feel free to let me know if you have as well, that black people that are part of the system um, typically will reflect that system onto you and not the kind of... Uh, sisterhood or culture or heritage that they assume however they are doing it because they think they are reflecting your culture your heritage so just a really quick story and I shared I shared it on my other podcast the other day which will go out shortly when I was in hospital for cancer I was in for nearly a month and I had elephant like I had no neck I looked like an elephant man or something and I was on and I've been on for many many years cyclozine which is 
um, anti-nausea drug because I ex I have extreme nausea all the time. It's just part of my life as well as other medications. Uh, they had a lot of bank staff, a black nurse. And I tell you that she was um, black because it matters in this story. A black nurse at 5 a.m. They hadn't given me my anti-nausea all night. They were short-staffed. I needed anti-nausea. I was sick. I was in pain. I was so much more, you know, so many more things I could describe. She came to the bedside. I asked her if I could have some cyclazine, please. She told me, you don't need it. And the reason I say that is because we perpetuate those things onto ourselves as well. As far as she's concerned, no, you're strong. You can do this. You don't need it. Don't depend on their drugs. And that, you know, it almost brings us into the how many of our family members and friends know better than we do. All you need to do is, or why don't you just... And it's really, really damaging when we have that from the world, but then also we have it quite typically from people who are in the system who are also from our communities. So I say all of that to to kind of um, you know support your point. I guess it's 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 madness. So what would you say, um, Connie? What would you say you have lost? So this is general now. What would you say that you feel you have lost? as a result of either your illness or not being treated appropriately. So in, um, yeah. if I was to give you an example, I lost my ability to create, procreate, because the years that I wasn't diagnosed and then the years that I was misdiagnosed and then the years that they didn't do anything and then the years that I was gaslighting myself, no, I, it can't be as bad as I think it is. That makes a lot of years. So what do you feel you might have lost as a result of? It's a hard one to say because it's about the evidence of that. So I think with my situation when it comes to my menopause and fertility, I think that, you know, I could lose the opportunity to build something. So, you know, in my story as well, I speak about my ex-husband. I'm a victim of domestic violence. And so I had a lot of years in a relationship that was not happy, where I was not in a happy, you know, family environment, I guess. And so now I'm in a new partnership, there is an opportunity for that. They haven't got any children, but here I am, perhaps not being able to do that. And so really it's a loss of um, future chances because I don't, you know, I don't know whether they will stay with that, you, do, do you see what I mean? It's that yeah. type of thing, isn't it? Um, and so I think for that, and I think when it comes to my daughter, I think it's the loss of the child that she could have been. Yeah, yeah. which is and massive. I mean, you work for yourself, and I'll come to Jamisha and Gail in just a moment, but you work for yourself. And, you know, do you think there has been a delay in you being able to reach the, you know, stratospheric heights that you were meant to have been at um, due to anything to do with your health? Um, 100%. Yeah, 100%. I would say that because I, I spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort trying to seek what I couldn't seek from the NHS, what I couldn't get from the NHS. And so I spent a lot of time... Um, yeah, and a lot of money doing those things. And also, it affects your mental health, it affects your confidence, it affects all of those things. And I was saying yesterday on my masterclass, actually, that people don't understand that when you're a founder, when you're a leader of any kind, um, your mindset, anybody, it's your mindset. If you haven't got the right mindset, it, it, 
you know, there's there's nothing. And so I think that when we are so beaten down by our health issues, mm -hmm. when that is the thing that is taking up the most of our mind space, that we don't realise how much that then does affect what our possibilities are, what our opportunities mm -hmm. are. And so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Same question to you, Jamisha, and then Gail. Do you feel you've lost anything as a result of your health or your illness or not being treated appropriately? Yeah, so similarly to what Dawn was saying, it's kind of like the loss of possibility of what you don't know or you you have no knowing of what you could have been. So you've lost that possibility of knowing what could have been had this not come into your life. Um, so, you know, like I'm prior to diagnosis I was a very active person. Um, I don't know if I was going to sit here and say I was going to be running in the Olympics, but <laughs> I liked running and I liked doing all kinds of sport. And it's not to say I don't do that at all, but I've lost, you know, the chance of perhaps the freedom of just, I'm going to go for a run, the freedom of I'm going to do this. Because now, anytime I have to think of those things, it's always about planning. Okay, so if I'm going to go to the gym, I have to account for the fact that the day after I might get sick or I might get very, very unwell. Uh, I might not, but I might. So I've got to now be like, okay, let me not plan something the day after that. So that da 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 da. Um, so there's just a loss of like, I wonder what it would have been like had this not been here. And also there's a loss of opportunity. So obviously I'm I'm grateful enough to have been able to uh, look into illness and, and, and create creative work and get inspired by it. However, there are many things I had to stop doing job-wise financially that have blocked me um, in my life. So um, sort of uh, not being able to hold down part-time jobs like most people where you're at 18 um, because I just can't do it and feeling really guilty about that. Um, being fired from a role, I've been I've been terminated illegally, but there's not much protection you have really when it's a salad bar in London. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> you're wearing a hairnet. Like, I mean, what, what, what are they, they going to do for me now? Like, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I was earning minimum wage anyway, but still, like <laughs> it's just not having that getting fired and then being on universal credit now because what job am I able to have post surgery? So it's all these things that a lot of people your age don't have to think of. These opportunities that um, give you that good start. And um, I am, as I said, I'm not ungrateful for like the opportunities I get now, but it is difficult. It is tricky, and there's many things you have to turn down that you can't do. So yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I, I think it's that whole fertility thing. You know, you, I've always, I always wanted to have kids. So when they put that information, oh, 2% chance. When someone says a 2% chance that you can have a child, that is basically nothing. Mm. And then I went and got some information and spoke to a fertility person when I was 41. So I emphasize 41. So that's 41. Let's, let's say from 18 to 41 that nobody, because I said to my consultant, I said, like, nobody's even talked to me about fertility. Nobody's said anything. I don't even know if I can even have kids. I, I don't even know. So I think there's that loss. And I know people say you should believe, and I am an optimistic person. But there's that fear, because when you've been to a clinic and they've said, 1%, 2% chance, and they're a professional 
doctor, fertility person, and they say that, there's something that, I don't know, for me, clicked in my mind, and it just kind of, I felt, broke a part of me. And then to think, could I have children, and then to go through that breaking again, to not, I know in life that nothing runs perfect. I, I get that. But I think it's such a big thing. Sometimes I, I feel I've lost even the hope because I don't want to go into that dark mental headspace again and again, like a groundhog day, and to have to go through all of the mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical downness of hearing that again. And then, you know, they're saying, oh, you're too old. It's going to cost this much money, but you can't do it because you've... I'm like, well, nobody told me this when I was 35. So I think it's that loss of the possibility of having children, but loss of even the hope to even try in a sense because you're scared that you're going to go through that again yeah the loss of the permission to dream is bigger than anyone can imagine and if you yeah. haven't experienced it then to you it's just like oh it's just it's just a bad period or oh you know you're in again you do not know until you're on the other side of that mm. um and it's just so sad and powerful so girl let me ask you this, the smiles we wear, there's a dark side to proving our capability, coping, overcompensation. Um, I find that a lot of people I speak to, I have to coach them out of uh, gaslighting themselves. So, no, you are feeling what you're feeling. Well, you know, well, why does that, why, why? Well, no, it's probably not as bad. Okay, why do you think it's not as bad? Um, and I just do the, the question thing because I wish I had had that. I wish that I had had a champion who didn't put themselves in my position, but saw me as me, right? So for you, they were just like flinging, I remember being like 16 and my um, white friends, and I don't know if it matters that they were white, but I remember they were, we're all on our periods at the same time. And I remember Sarah was flinging her legs about, she was like, let the blood run free. It's a, it's a, 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 a memory that I remember, just something that's sticking in my head. <laughs> Well, well, meanwhile, I'm there with like the thickest, you know, wobbling, <laughs> like, you know, uh, waddle waddle. Because, bro, if I let that blood run free, we all. Woo! There'll be a trail <laughs> in it. I know those ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you learn because of the reaction. And this is kind of, I guess, what I want to get at with this point. Because of the reaction to our complex illnesses and chronic conditions and hidden disabilities from the people either in our families, communities, or the world or workplaces, we start to wear a smile. We start to say, don't worry, I've got it. We start to do more. We go above and beyond because we need to prove either to ourselves or to them that I'm just as capable, even though we've lost opportunities, even though... As you said, Jamisha, when I come in from doing whatever I said I would do for you and I do it well and everyone's like, oh my gosh, Shay, that was amazing. I then collapse behind my front door for a week, right? We, we do that smart thing. And like I said, I could be you could be forgiven for believing that I'm fine. Meanwhile, here I am sat on uh, with three layers on, sat on a towel because I've been bleeding since October 2021. 
Do you know what I mean? So let's let's talk about the 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 smile. When did you decide that you needed to put the smile on? What are you um, faking in order to convince other people that you're <laughs> capable of? Wow. I think I spent a whole lifetime doing that, you know. Uh, <laughs> a whole lifetime of of wearing a smile. Because, you know, it's that, that thing, you just don't want to be a burden to people. Yeah. And whether it's you have a sad face and they ask the questions, or sometimes you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to answer the question because of what that does to you. Um, and overcompensating those of you who know, I do plenty of things. Um, and I think it, for me, I found, especially if you've been on your own, or living alone, in the quietness and the silence of your home, when you have nothing to do, these thoughts just take control. And I just, I just don't want to be in that place. So I personally, I went to get counselling, because there's a lot of, not to say that my life was particularly traumatic and stuff, but I think it's just that on picking up lots and lots and lots of stuff, which I 50 trillion percent recommend that people should do that. And there is a place where you have to be honest and you have to be vulnerable, but I'll be honest for myself, I find it hard. But I do talk about stuff, I'm, do, I'm not hiding stuff, but there's yeah. some stuff like people don't know that I get super tired and I have to spend a whole day, but people don't know that because I will still be, I'll sleep, wake up, do some work, go back to sleep. Blah, 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 blah. That's how I was. So nobody would actually know that. Um, yeah. But I just say, just keep on, for me, and maybe this is the wrong approach, but I'm like, just keep swimming. You've got to do what works for you. And the thing is, you mentioned vulnerability there. Um, but those of us who have this experience, our vulnerability has been rejected time and time again. Mm. So whilst there is some vulnerability we need to have, you know, um, how do you find that balance, Jamisha? How, you know, how do you find that? You, in particular, share so much on your social media and it must tap into that vulnerability. How do you find that? There's like, um, if I'm being honest, like a level of vulnerability I'm willing to share. And then there's always a part you keep for yourself, which I think is quite important. So I do it because it's helpful. Um, weirdly enough, like creating the content is a process. So when I'm thinking about what I'm sharing, the process of actually having to put something together makes me think about that and pick apart the the thought more which is quite therapeutic in a way but there's still a level of vulnerability that people don't get um and I prefer to keep that and the reason why is um I find it a little annoying when people respond and they just can't help you and I actually just find it quite irritating I know that sounds rude but <laughs> I, I do it's so just like you know you, you could you could be honest and say oh I'm just really struggling today someone's like oh we can't do anything for each other and it just it makes me just go all right well then I, I just don't like I just don't yeah. do it because it just because I, I know you want to help me and you just can't and it's just like at, at this point let me just unpack it maybe that's the wrong way but that's kind of where I'm at so in a way 
I do partly share sort of like some of that stuff because sometimes it's nice to have a conversation with people, but there is a level where I keep because sometimes also what happens is, is like there are, there are really lovely people that engage with my content online. If I post my real vulnerable moments though, I will get also quite a lot of people responding and it can be also overwhelming as well. Cause it's just like, I don't want to, I just wanted to shout it into the ether and then just know it was out. I actually didn't necessarily want the response back because the response back is often reflective of your own fear or your own, you know, for example, like with my mum, my mum is a, no a lovely person. Uh, when I was first diagnosed, she didn't want to really hear about it. She didn't want to see when I was on well, because it is very, very difficult for her because that part is like, she can't help me. And I, and I appreciate that. But on my end, it's also hard to, inform someone of something and then them not and then struggle to process it because then that's now like well I feel a way now because you're struggling to process we're, we're, neither of us are wrong in that regard you know I really under, I, I don't understand what my mum's going through because I don't have children I can't imagine what it would be like when someone well the closest thing is like my little niece you know like when she and maybe she won't appreciate me sharing this because she's like 11 now and now she's cool so but like uh, when she was a baby, she would get constipated. So you know when babies get constipated and you just can't do anything? Like, you just can't. And they're just crying. And you're just looking at them like... Oh, and then they don't even understand what's going on. And you're like, I'm sorry. And you're just trying to, like, comfort them. But you can't you can't take it away from them. So I understand, like, it's hard on that regard. But sometimes in, I, I do have to keep a level of that vulnerability for myself and just take the time to process it on my own. Um, but, yeah, it is, it is tricky. Um the smile is just easier sometimes as well. Whether it's the right thing to do or not, the smile is just easier. And kind of like similar to what um, Gail was saying, if I truly, um, uh, I guess, embrace the reality or something, I might go start going down a hole that I don't want to go down. So do you know yeah. what? Let me park it sometimes and just... And I don't know if that's the right thing to do or not, but sometimes to get through the day, that is the thing to do. I, th I was going to say, I think that is absolutely then the thing to do because it gets you to the next day, it gets you to the next moment, and that's what's really key. And it made me think again about the what we've lost question because I, I feel like so many of us have lost um, our ability to be social. I am an extreme introvert. I would prefer to be behind the scenes. I don't want to go out there. I don't want to speak to you. I will do it well, and I'll fake it. And I like interacting with people that I finally know really well because now I don't have to pretend. I can be like, I'm... I'm just in the corner. I'm cool. And they're not going to be like, come on, let... <sighs> you're exhausting me right now, right? <laughs> um, but I also don't, I'm, I'm at the stage where I don't want you to ask me how I feel today or how I am today, because I've committed to being so frank and honest with myself in this moment that all you're going to hear is the same answer. And to you, because your hands will suddenly be tied. Oh no, I'm so sorry. I don't want your pity, my girl. I don't want your pity, dude. I don't want it. What I want is just you to stop asking me because, and I've been saying that to my closest friends, please stop asking me because the answer will be the same. You will feel compelled to pity me. And actually I, I will have a better conversation if we're just busting joke and then we move on. How about we do that? This is my life. It has been my life. You have not known me as anything else. How about we stop asking how I am? Um, so Dawn, you travel, um, I know you do it as well, Gail, but you travel and you quite often frequently travel around the world to sing, to do BVs, to, you know, as vocalists, doing all sorts of things. Has your illness, has your condition impacted the accommodations you need to be present in that moment? 
and whether the accommodations you're making for yourself or have you had to speak up and say, okay, so I need half an hour by myself to, you know, sort my stomach out or whatever before we go on stage. Like, how, how has that impacted you? So I just want to add, actually, to the last point about the smiling thing first, because um, for me, that's like a, a profound thing. So obviously, I'm a coach. My job is, and I'm a motivational speaker, I go to schools and colleges, universities, and I talk to them about goal setting and how you can live the most successful life. So there's this part of me where it's like nothing's supposed to be wrong with me. And then if something is wrong with me, I have to make it into flowers because otherwise, how can I help you to make your wrong things into flowers? So there's there's that part. And there's also so people always say to me and I sometimes if I'm near them uh, and I'll be like, oh, how are the kids? And I know that the majority of the time they're asking about a layer. Now, a layer at the moment has a condition that doesn't change. And so for me to then say, well, actually, I'm still really worrying about what would happen to her if I drop dead in the middle of the street tomorrow. <laughs> I'm still really like trying to figure out how I can help her life to be the best. I still really feel sorry for her and pity her because she can't see stuff. If I offload that, like you mm. said, Shay, if I offload that on you, then it's the awkwardness. So how's the kids? How's the, oh, she's doing really well, you know. She's really doing well. She's doing... And that is what we do. And the, But the thing is, I realise that every time I do it, I die a little bit inside, actually. Mm. And I would rather you not ask. So that, that you've just said, I, I completely can, you know, attune with that. And when it comes to travelling, so... I um, have noticed that I need a fan with me at all times. And what will happen is I'll be on stage or we'll be in sound check. And, you know, girl, sound check, sometimes you're waiting around. They're doing all kinds of things and we're there for time. And I'll be there. And every, next minute, you'll just see sweat start to pour from me in, like, Switzerland or somewhere. And, <laughs> and so I'm getting my fan out. So it's more of the... Because I know people that are hot people anyway. So, you know, we know people that normally... And nowadays, it's a trend, isn't it? All the girls walking around with their fans. So it's not as bad as it was, you know, say four years ago when I, you know, when it started to happen. But people will just look at me like, why do you need a fan? And then I have to explain when well, I think I'm going through the menopause. And again, it's another moment where you need to know more of my business than I want you to know. Yeah. And, you know, people talk about... Um, just I'm kind of mixing the two topics, but people talk about vulnerability and being vulnerable. But we must also realise, and I was talking to somebody about it the other day because they were talking about their social media. And I notice on LinkedIn, if I post something, I'm going to use LinkedIn as an example. If I post something about devastation, so the other day I posted something about the the the, the guy that had been killed by the police men. And I posted something about that. And I will get triple or quadruple the likes than if I post something about, you know, here's what's happened. Here's what you should take with you in your day. Or, you know, this is this person has achieved this thing or whatever it is. It's almost like people like negativity so that they can sympathize mm. but really it's about making themselves feel better because their lives aren't as bad as what you are showing them and i don't think it's an intentional mm. thing 
And it's why we like things like soap operas. It's why we watch EastEnders and we can see that this person slept with some person, then the child got kidnapped by the someone, then somebody shoots something. Nothing <laughs> that will ever happen in our lives. But we watch those things and it then makes us feel better. Oh, we don't live like that. Look at their Yorkshire puddings. You know, <laughs> <laughs> about the people. Not the Yorkshire puddings. <laughs> I think I'm not playing into your narrative of making yourself feel better by hearing the sorrows of my life. So let me yeah. fake it for you and we can all move on. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting. Because... Oh, no, go for it, girl. I was at a point, uh, continuing about that same question, because there's also the smiles and the overcompensation that we do when we go to the appointments at the hospital. And I want <laughs> I need to have you all back. I need to have you all back just to discuss that point alone. We could have a four-hour podcast on that one. because oh, yeah, I just thought, wow, I think we also tend to maybe should we? And I know um oh should should we when we go to the, these appointments when when they told me about the fertility thing, I in my head I said. I'm not crying in front of you. I'm not going to cry. I'm going to suck it up. I am not going to cry. You are not going to see me cry. And I sat there. The tears were just, you know, when they're just in your eyes and they're just pouring at the back of your skin and they just, they just want to come out. And I walked out of the hospital to get the bus and that's when I cried. But in front of the staff, I haven't said anything. I haven't said, you know, you saying that is, has hurt me so deeply emotionally. I don't think you should say that to other people or you maybe need to, we just, we just leave. Yeah. And we just strong like, yep, that's fine. We'll go on. It, it's so interesting because I cried in the consultant's office at some point in 2021 for the exact opposite reason. So I went in, I did the smart thing. What's your pain like? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, what do you want to hear? Or do I tell you the truth? Or do I tell you how it affects me? But what this consultant did, all consultancy, you know, appointments tend to be like 10 minutes. I was in there for an hour. He drew a picture explaining, you see all those things I put up about what's wrong with me? He was like, okay, this is what this means. This is what this means. And he just spent an hour drawing my womb, the adhesions, what it would mean if I bleed for too long. Uh, I mean, I'm still being wait waiting to be re-referred back. So obviously I'm scared, you know, colostomy bag is next or whatever. But I cried not because of the conversation or all the things that are wrong with me. I I've been living with that. I cried because he took the time to just draw me a picture I was like, I'm so sorry. I was like pulling down my mask. I was like, I'm so sorry. He was like, it's fine. And he just got me some tissues and I cried. I cried because I felt that finally I was being seen. Didn't last. It was just that one appointment. <laughs> I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen him again. But it was just a moment in millions of moments that I felt like I could be me again or someone actually saw me or the complexity of me. I remember that's just in Guinea. That's not with the other three specialists. So... You mentioned fans, <laughs> Dawn. <laughs> what are your weird coping mechanisms? For me, it's having the fan on. I sleep with the fan on. I will have the heating on. I have the heater on behind me. The minute I get in the bed, the fan goes on and it stays on all night. So, guys, just like, because... Sorry, not guys. Because we are... Um, I want to lighten it before we wrap up. <laughs> what would you say your weird coping mechanisms are? <laughs> 
Ooh. Mine will be quick. Nakedness in the night. <laughs> and <having my> sweet, <laughs> so that I can do this and do this and do this and do this. So I'll be like the middle of the night and I will wake up and I'm drenched in sweat. And then I'll just be like this. And the funny thing is, outside of my bedroom window, across the way, they're building that, these new flats. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally onto my back garden. So I said, in a few months' time, oh, no, I got to say something. <laughs> 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 uh, flip it, flash. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, even in my own house, it's very weird. Even in my own house, I'm still not fully comfortable with my own nakedness. That's so weird. I'm like, no, somebody's gonna walk in. I live on my own. <laughs> yeah, or, or I'm like, hold on, if there's a fire, I'll have to run out the front door, and then my whole neighborhood will see me. <laughs> weird. I need to work. Jamisha, um, <laughs> girl, what what do you think? What are your weird coping mechanism? I don't know if I have any weird coping mechanisms. I think the naked, the naked one is, is amazing. I love that one. <laughs> um, my coping mechanisms really are not, they're not so much weird, but it's just more like um, uh, pre-planning in advance. Um, still doing things that I enjoy though to try and feel normal. So I could say that um, uh, we've been in a pandemic, we still are technically, and uh, I went out with my friends for the first time, obviously, in a couple of years, and the landscape of clubbing is very different. Um, and it made me realise that I need to find clubs with seats um, because I was broken out. And then I realised that I had to remember myself and I had to sit down and catch my breath. And I was just like, like <laughs> I didn't know it was like that. Like, jeez. Like, and then people are still, the Gen Zs, which, you know, I'm on the cusp, but the Gen Zs are still partying. And I was like, was that what I used to cool so it's just planning around that knowing the next day I was going to be out of commission um planning in advance and then also just like I have brain fog so uh I don't know if it's weird but I have hooks everywhere so I've come to realize in my room I need to see everything if it's not visible to me immediately I'm going to forget that it exists so all my key everything's on a hook in my room everything's hung up everything's out um yeah so just little things like that help me yeah, and I absolutely put the weird in inverted commas because they're not weird to us. They they help us to survive, but to other people, they're like, why are you doing that though? Like, mind your business. <laughs> um, I think mine is, because <clears throat> I look seven, eight months pregnant. Now, it doesn't, because people have asked so much, it doesn't really bother me in now, but it used to bother me a bit because I, if I wear anything fitted, I, I do look pregnant. And then people ask me and I'm like, oh. So I only wear baggy, A-line, Empire line. And it's really weird. Sometimes like at Christmas, you see some, because we, Connie myself, we, we know we Christmas at certain times, you need to have a sequin dress. And all of them are body cons. And I'm like, <laughs> why? Why has nobody just thought of like having a whole range of sequin dresses that are not fitted so, yeah, for me, A-line, Empire-line, baggy, you know, stuff that doesn't flat, that doesn't, that's not, you know, not clinging to my belly. Yeah, that's my, it's not even that weird, but it's just, <laughs> yeah, my little thing. But you're it's, a, like, fashion icon, though, Gail. 
Just don't you ever forget that one. I can see oh, that already. I, I, I take that. that. I thank you so much. I don't even but know I you and I can see that in the box. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, the, it's the A-line and the Empire line and the baggy. Everything these days is clingy or it's got a cut-out piece at the back. Why and it's just they like, all the sides? Yeah. Everything's under your boobs with nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. Like you look at it from the front and you're like, oh, what a lovely dress. And then you can flip the model around. And I'm like, oh, I'm in And you're like, yeah, oh, she the church, but nope. <laughs> this clothes are not where I think some of these clothes are not made for just normal bodies. <laughs> And there's certain shops which I will remain nameless, but I, I, I can't buy nothing in there because I'm like everything in here is for a different category of size of people from another world. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, honestly, it's really interesting you would say that because there is uh, there are a couple of people I follow on Instagram, and I've been tempted, and I always sit on ideas. Again, I guess like myself, that's dumb. Then they're going to be like, why would I do that? But I've wanted to say to them you know are you interested in designing something for people whose bellies are always swollen hi um what about i have permanent pain i have fray syndrome all of my nerves detached and attached in a different way so this i'm always in pain here from the cancer uh i can't wear heavy e earrings i love your earring line they're for black people because i want to also support and you know i'll su support anything but in particular your brand is amazing do you do anything that might specifically speak to people who have pain? It doesn't have to be a, for cancer. Just, you know, I've wanted to tap into these people and just say, hi, this is, these are some of our stories. And, you know, we you exist. Should. And if you want to, mm. you know, um, that can would be phenomenal. That, Shay? Sorry, just on that point, can I add something? Because it's something that's happened this week. It's kind of off topic, but not. So basically, because of everything with the NHS, the last year or so, I've invested in having private health care. I won't name the company because I'm about to go in on them. So let's just leave it for now. <laughs> so I've gone on my daughter. So my daughters are covered under there. So one of my daughters said to me the other day, Mom, I'm getting really bad headaches. My eyes feel funny, you know, that kind of thing. So I said, all right, let's book you in with one of these GPs rather than going to our doctor because they will refer you quickly did that, went on to book the appointment and it said that I had to submit something to prove that I was her mother and it gave me a choice of either a birth certificate or an adoption certificate. So I've gone, well, I have her birth certificate but I've changed my name since she was born. She's 14. So there's no other box. I've submitted the birth certificate. I've booked the appointment. Come the next day, we've cancelled your appointment because the birth certificate doesn't show that you are her parent. So I've gone to them and I've said, so basically what you're telling me is women who are were not married when they had their children, women who have since remarried, uh, men or women who have changed their gender and their name, pe women who are fleeing domestic violence, that your system, because you don't put just another little box under there or another little thing where you can upload another file for people to explain or to say why, because I've got my deed of name change. I could send that to them. People have their divorce papers. They'll have their marriage certificates. They'll have their bits to prove that trail. But the system is so biased against the patriarchal, traditional ways of mm. being that they don't even have that option. I just wanted to point that out because I'm about to go ham on them and you will hear about this again. 
So yeah, <laughs> amazing. I mean, we're, we're wrapping. We're coming towards the end, but uh, where we're going to ask where you, we can find all of you. But if you want to know the outcome of that story, I'm sure it will be on her LinkedIn. So go follow. <laughs> <laughs> so just kind of going towards wrapping up, I would love to um, ask you two questions. Two questions. I was going to ask one, but I actually want to ask two. Um, how do you choose you? We've all got these competing health conditions. We all struggle, um, you know, and... Oh, the one thing I did want to mention that I forgot was that, and just by a show of hands, just let me know or thumbs down or whatever if you don't experience it. Do you ever experience the the struggle Olympics where you say, oh, I'm not well today and someone else is like, yeah, I had that and my periods are bad too. And you're like, okay. Like, do you experience that where people compare and compete with you to be the worst off today? I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm too, maybe I'm too open in hearing people, like they feel comfortable to share. And so I'm like, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't for you to open up to me. I don't have the energy. Um, but how do you choose you? Yeah, I, I guess with your platform. Yeah. No, yeah. funnily enough, often it's more family than the platform. Funnily enough, it's family oh. that want to bring up their problems. But anyway, sorry, I'm I'm diverting. <laughs> no, it's, it's valid. It is absolutely valid. Don't let me start on Auntie Donna, and I'm sure she'll watch this at some point. <laughs> I, I get messages on WhatsApp about, to sleep, all you need to do, just do this. And I'm like, thanks. Because <laughs> what else sleep can I do? Bible under your uh, pillow. Good in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, thank you for that Bible text that did not help my bleeding to stop. Um, so, <laughs> uh, how do you choose you? Tips, advice, insights, and wisdom. And then the last question. So don't give all of your tips here because the last question will be what are the top three lessons you think you've learned? Um, but first, how do you choose you? I like I know what everyone's like. Now. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know. Me. I think I've had problems with that, but um, the ways that I'm working on that is like uh, doing things I enjoy um, without feeling guilty. So um, I've taken up a lot of hobbies, and I'm just doing them just because um, to kind of bring that joy back in life. Um, because life is hard, as we all know, and there are many aspects that we can't change and have no control over. So I've been kind of just doing stuff. If I feel something, if I'm like, I feel to to, to do a dance class today, if I can afford it, I'm just going to do it. Um, because I think to have more moments in where you're just enjoying yourself, it's not all about work. It's not all about achieving and, 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 and trying to always be the best. Cause also you can have a hobby and be really bad at it. I'm terrible at dancing. I'm awful. Um, like Are you I, up there? <laughs> I thought I was, but I don't think that's how, what it looked like on the outside, but you know, with liquid courage, you tend to misremember. <laughs> so um, I'm just saying I like, do things that like make you feel good. Um, that's how I kind of choose me now. I never used to do that before. Um, and I kind of got, I realised I didn't do it when I went to New York once and met my cousin for the first time and he was with his girlfriend and they were so excited to meet me. They were like, oh my gosh, he's from London, blah, blah, blah. They're like, so what do you do? Like, what's, 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 what do you do for fun? And I'm like, I didn't have anything to say. I just said, I go, I go uni. I said, I go uni, I study and sleep. And he was like, 
yeah but like hobbies or you go out I'm like no and then from then I was like you need some stuff to do like outside of that you need to have some joy that's nothing to... I mean you know so that's I would say that um in terms of that's something I really prioritize now yeah I love that I love that so much yeah. um Dawn girl um for me I think um for me it's been a bit of a journey. So I have always been a person that, you know, will go for massages, I'll do things like that. But I also schedule rest in my diary now. So in the same way that I will write down, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I think last year it was I decided that I was suffering from burnout. I don't know whether any of you guys have heard of human design, but I discovered my human design type and it changed my whole entire life, the way I view things. And now I teach it to people I coach. But um, I, when I discovered that, I was like, you're not supposed to be going like, this is why you start to feel upset and all the rest of it. So, yeah, so I plan, I schedule in rest as well as work. And um, I also make sure that I do do nice things for me. I'll just sit and chill for a little while. Sometimes I will, you know, watch something or go out with my friends. I'm very, so Gail knows I'm quite a social person. I'm also introverted, though. It's a weird one. I have to be around my people. I don't know. It's a bit of a um, so yeah. So I'm I'm quite social. I like to go out and do those kind of things. And you know, people might look at me with side eye because I do have four children. And why is she always out? And why is she always mind your business? I've raised my children because of for me. I've raised my children for me. <laughs> so you know, they are able to be fine when I'm not around. And um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I say that's what I will do. So um, I'll move to the tips afterwards. Uh, I think for me, um, I love traveling and I, I'm with you, Jamisha, that it's important to get some hobbies. You don't have to be good at them. It's just something that is, you just do. It's just for the sheer enjoyment of it. Um, so I just, yeah, find some random things. I write in a journal. I think journaling is very, very, very powerful. Having that kind of document of like this is how I felt last year oh wow look at look at the transition mentally or emotionally I've made from last year to this year oh I said that and I'm like look I'm still here um so journaling and I think just living your best life I'm determined that I'm gonna live my best bestest life um so that means traveling it means eating it means sometimes I just have to stay in my bed all day and sleep Sometimes it means, okay, right now I have to work, make some money so I can go on holiday. Sometimes it means that I'm going to spend time with my friends. Sometimes it means that you can't go somewhere because one, you don't want to go. Two, you're just too tired and not being scared to say, actually, I can't come. I know it might take an hour of processing, oh, no. but sometimes you just can't go. You're just too tired, too drained. I can't, sorry, I can't go. And the other thing is, don't be scared to say no. Yeah. Um, mine are much more basic. Do not disturb on my phone is my best friend. And not just because, uh, no, but it's not even just because I don't want people to, I don't want to see the call because I happily screen it. It's actually because I don't want to verbally explain that I don't have the capacity. So if do not disturb is on, actually, that explains it for me. I'm not here. I, I can't speak for whatever reason. Um, and then the other thing is probably quite random because obviously I'm a creative first. TikTok 
it's such a creative place. So typically, uh, if you see a period of time where I post on my Instagram like 15 TikToks back to back at like 2 a.m., it's because I need to find some decompression. And so what I've done, I hardly go on TikTok outside of my decompression time. Uh, so, you know, every few weeks I'm like, TikTok, this is the best thing that ever was made. Um, and then I, it, you know, things me up and I'm like, yeah, let's get to it. And then I'm exhausted. <laughs> and then I decompress and I have do not disturb and I put on um, TikTok. But there are some amazing creative people out there. And I'm not just talking about being a creative. I'm talking because I think everyone is creative at heart. But there are some creative people out there who can really inspire you or make you laugh or help to teach you to dance, you know, on TikTok and whatnot. So, yeah, I, I advise everyone to go to TikTok. So our final question. Let's go. Um, Gail, Dawn, Jamisha. Ooh, what are the top three lessons you've learned? Um, that I and my views, my life, my experiences are valid. Um, not being scared to ask questions. And um, hmm, I haven't got a third one. Maybe celebrating where I've come from and. In, Living my best life regardless of the circumstances. Um, I think I've waffled there, but those are my top three things. I'm sure I'm sure they to be more profound, but I think, yeah, those those three. Amazing. Oh, thinking. <laughs> so <laughs> my top thing is that thoughts become things. Hundred percent. That's changed my life. Um, always to follow your gut as well um i think if i had followed my gut with when i've be, had interactions with the medical profession more i may not necessarily be in a better place but you know the, where i am now i might have been there three years ago six years ago um so, yeah, so that's what I would say is always follow your gut and your mental health, whatever you have to do to maintain your mental health, do that thing regardless of what anybody else thinks. So that's what I would say. Thank you. I think for me, the first one would be just have good boundaries in many different aspects um, that you'll know is important so just like keep those boundaries in many different aspects second one is um that your value didn't uh, diminish because you have a illness or a disability or anything like that despite it feeling like that way in society and perhaps many instances society often like does things to kind of show you that that's how they view you but that that you have to kind of recognize in yourself that your value hasn't diminished and that you're a very important person and and that the last one would be also to kind of try to work on getting rid of the guilt feeling um, for choosing yourself. Um, it's something I'm still working on now, to be fair. So I'm not going to say it in this like high and mighty position, but um, try to get rid of like feeling bad for choosing yourself and choosing your body because you feel bad at first. And then when you haven't cho chosen yourself, you regret it later on. You look back and go, oh my gosh, now I'm in this situation. I should have just said no, I should have just did this or that. So yeah, those would be my three. Thank you so, so much. 
it's been a really wonderful conversation with you all and I the, the, you have no idea there were so many more points that I have to hear like I've got my word document and all but actually I think the conversation and I remember in the in the intro email I kind of was like these are some of the points but actually let's see where the conversation goes because the most yeah. natural things that we can talk about are always going to um humanize something that is such a vulnerable place to be so just in wrapping up I'm just going to ask you first to if there if there's anyone on social media or LinkedIn or anywhere that you think people should follow, um, just shout them out and I will put those in the description when this is released. And then also let the people know where they can find you, please. Who wants to go first? I've got one person. So, <laughs> um, and her name is Ali Hemsley. She, she is um, a chronic pain advocate so she's a student I think she just finished her degree or her master's but she's had a load of experience because of her chronic illness having to take time off and now she helps other people but her social media and things is 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 excellent so if you're a chronic pain sufferer particularly if you're a young person um I mean what is young nowadays <laughs> um uh, particularly if you're I a am. younger person I think that she's a great person so yes yeah, A-L-I Hems Hemsley yeah Excellent. And where can the best? Oh, where can you find me? Okay, <laughs> so I'm Dawn Morton Young on LinkedIn. On Instagram, I'm the Div the Diverse Leaders Coach. On TikTok, I'm Diversity Dawn. <laughs> and Facebook is the Diverse Leaders Coach as well. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Gail. Um, the person or the two accounts, um, for different reasons. So first of all, for fibroids and fibroid information, um, Dawn Heels, she's got lots of like information and video sharing her own experience. Um, so I recommend hers. And also because I, you know, I so resonate with what Dawn was saying about we are attracted to bad news, negative, gore, and all that kind of stuff. And this Instagram just spreads joy and happiness, and they just share good news. And they're called, I think they're called the good news, I'll, yeah, good news. But there's a few of them, and they just put happy stories, hopeful stories, happy, smiley, that kind of stuff. And it does a world of good. Um, my details are on Facebook, I am Gail S. Windrass. On Instagram, I am Gail Windrass. And on TikTok, which I have recently discovered. You're going to be amazing. Which is fabulous. <laughs> I am Gail Windrass. On, um, on um, Twitter, I am Gail Windrass, but I just want to note the caveat is um, my Twitter is just for complaining. So if you see any complaints <laughs> to airlines stuff, that is the platform that I use. It seems to work. Yeah, so. <laughs> but you can follow me in any of those places. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I was just trying to get up my list. Um, I have a couple of people that I think people should follow. So um, I always shout out Triple Cripples. There are, there are two black disabled women um, and they speak about such amazing things, just very well researched and well read. So I would say follow them mainly on like Instagram, I think they're on. Um, and then I would also say like, 
in, her name on Instagram is like and, to, and TikTok is Crutches and Spice. She's American. She's a Black American, but she creates such amazing content surrounding disability justice and stuff. So I'd say follow them there. And then also, I also like to shout out sickle cell accounts, especially in the UK, just because sickle cell is like the most common genetic disorder in the world, and yet the patients do not get um, the respect they deserve. So um, there's her sickle journey um, who makes great content and sickle can as well. And then, yeah. So in terms of me, uh, I'm just, you look okay to me on everything. So short and sweet. Uh, <laughs> you'll Is find it Y-O-U me. or you? Y-O-U. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. And I will be asking them for spellings and handles. So in the, description of wherever you're watching this or listening to it you will be able to find all of those links as well um all that's left for me to say to you all is thank you and um bye bye thank you thank you bye, bye. don't go don't log off you guys <laughs> butterfly butterfly pretty butterfly when i see you flap your wing nido when it's time for spring butterfly butterfly Pretty butterfly.